Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. In this edition, we sat down to talk about the retirement crisis with professor and researcher Sarab Bargava. Sarab teaches at Carnegie Mellon University, but he joined us in the Behavioral Group studio when he was visiting Minnesota in December of 2018. We've decided to share his conversation with you in a way that adds Kurt's and my grooving comments as we go. Sarab is working on some very cool research projects. The one that we spent the most amount of time on was about findings he's made in how people prepare or don't prepare for retirement. There are lots of complexities when it comes to retirement. We don't know how long we're going to live. We don't know exactly how much we're going to spend. We don't know how the economy is going to be in the future. It's tricky, right? It's very tricky. These are difficult, if not impossible, components to estimate. But that doesn't make it any less important. And Saurabh is working on ways to help people who have not really engaged in their retirement to get started. So please sit back and enjoy a fine glass of old French wine. Old French wine. Uh, well, why, why not new French wine? Well, that's my. That's, well, actually, why new French wine when you could have old French wine? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> old French wine, it is. I suppose have old French wine if you if you have it. <laughs> if you have it. But, there you go. But listen to our discussion. Enjoy our discussion with Sarah Bargava. Sarah Bargava. Welcome. We are glad to have you here in the Behavior Groove Studios. <laughs> well, thanks for thanks for having me. It's uh, it's nice to be home. Um, <laughs> yeah. and staring at a uh, beautiful carving of a of a Minnesota Viking. There you presumably, go. Presumably, so yeah. yeah. You and how are you feeling about the Vikings this season? Um, it's kind of a mix, huh? Yeah, I think it's a mixed bag. Uh, certainly, relative to expectations, um, earlier in the season, it's it's been it's been disappointing. Um, relative <laughs> to expectations, maybe um, seven or eight days ago, it's we're on a positive uh, trend line. So. <laughs> let, I was let, gonna say, if we I, can keep that going through the end of the season. Yeah, yeah, we'll say all right. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is uh, not holding out much hope for. No, yeah, for the it's good all old about setting, setting expectations, setting guess, expectations. So. Which is so we should tell you a little bit more about Sarab and his work. We mentioned that he's a professor at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, but he also taught at the University of Chicago's Booth School. And he's particularly interested in how behavioral sciences impact policies that shape the context of our lives. Like many researchers in behavioral science, Saurabh wants to make life better for people through the application of good science. He's particularly concerned about issues that impact people's well-being. Some of his past research has been focused on how we make health insurance choices and the effects of driving with a mobile phone in your hand, which you should not do. Don't do that. But here he introduces how he works. Yeah, so um, just as an introduction, um, you know, most of my work uses kind of natural and field experiments to better understand uh, the systematic ways in which people's behavior departs from what economists um, uh, have would think of as kind of a rational benchmark. And then using some of these insights um, to help improve how we think about the design of, of policies and, and programs um, that are intended to help them. Uh, this is the underlying motivation for a lot of recent work on um, uh, retirement savings and, and financial uh, planning um, that uh, some colleagues and I have, have been doing. Um, but, I, but I think we're, we're in a fascinating time because um, behavioral insights are, are being, I think, um, both discovered and applied 
really substantively in, in, um, areas of kind of health insurance and criminal justice and, you know, clinical decision-making. So there, there are a lot of exciting fronts where, um, some of this work is being done. Saurabh introduces the problems around retirement savings and the work he's done to better understand why many people aren't adequately prepared for retirement, especially among those who work at companies with generous 401k plans with matching contributions. In other words, an employee could set aside 6% of their own money and it would be matched by an additional 6% of the company's money, equaling a total contribution to retirement of 12% of their income. On an economic basis, Every employee should take advantage of this, but the research indicates that as much as 20% of employees don't take part in these programs. That's free money that people are just throwing away. Economically speaking, I think this is what economists call stupid. (laughs) Is is that a technical term? I think it is the technical (laughs) term for people who don't take a, a, a part of these, but being that this is a common component, Saurabh wanted to find out more. And so in this next section, Saurabh sets up the problem. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, we we think that um, uh, there are a lot of statistics from household finance uh, surveys and uh, anecdotal evidence and some empirical evidence now that a small majority um, of individuals' households who are um, on the brink of retirement have very little uh, to no savings. And, and, and most people, the larger majority, is probably not on track for what we think of as kind of a secure retirement um, where they're um, headed towards uh, a lifestyle that is... Um, Are there percentages around this? Yeah, no, I mean, so the, the, um, um, the data around how many people are headed towards retirement poverty, we don't have, I think, great statistics on that. Yeah. Um, so that's something that we're um, in in our current research that we're trying to do with respect to looking at um, actual enrollees at 401k plans okay. and to see what fraction um, of workers who are actually enrolled in plans that are you know presumably supposed to prepare you for retirement are actually headed towards a comfortable retirement or uh, are headed towards a you know a secure retirement or. Um, a retirement that would allow them to not have to go back to work or rely on means-tested public funding or a dramatic change to their lifestyle. Well, I know we talked with um, uh, Silky Britton, right? Uh, and she's over in England. And her mm-hmm. she, the, one of the recent things that she was doing is trying to get people, because what was the quote? That they're like 400 pounds um, that people in Britain, there is like, 50, over 50% of people didn't have 400 pounds in their savings account. In their savings account. So, yeah. if right. any, like, right. you know what? Your, yeah. your washer breaks down, your car breaks down, you have to go, you break an arm. You are, you don't have enough money to cover any of that. That is just, uh, you know, that. That's challenging. Yeah. So, I mean, essentially, we're just saying clarifying kind of people's tolerance for, for, for risk, how much risk they're willing to take in. Uh, financial decisions with some um, uncertainty is this chief uh, one of the one of the principal kind of undertakings of um, a lot of economists and they right. try to study it in the lab and they a lot of people that try to study it um, using 
real life choices in the field. And primarily they look at like insurance decisions, like yeah. the choice of one deductible over another. And then they try to back out um, what that says about people's kind of risk preferences or perceptions of risk. Um, or they look at kind of betting data and betting behavior. And um, so these things are incredibly important because risk is at the basis of uh, welfare um, analysis of a particular policy or forecasts of how people are going to react to legislations or policies or price changes. So Rob sometimes refers to the situation as retirement poverty. People who are knowingly or unknowingly underprepared for retirement are, in many cases, not participating in 401k programs. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Again, our armchair analytical selves can't imagine a good reason for not participating. It's free money. But this is the problem that Rob decided to look into. Yeah, so we know that risk tolerance varies, right? But our biases, which are much more universal than the varying risk tolerances, tolerances you know, they play a role in these decisions. And... Uh, Context matters. Context does matter. And you think about this. What is the situation that the individual is in? Are they currently impoverished? Are they feeling like they're not impoverished? Where are they in their life component? Are they married? Are they not married? Um, Are they feeling like they're living paycheck to paycheck? There are a number of these factors that come into play that are all contextual in nature. Exactly. I can imagine the uh, living paycheck to paycheck uh, situation, feeling like I can't afford uh, ten dollars a month, you know, to, or ten dollars a paycheck to put into my my four hundred one k. That's you know that could just seem crazy to to take even ten dollars, you know, out to make that contribution. A hundred, two hundred, five hundred dollars. So again, across the yeah. board, it, it you know it's not necessarily comprised of just those people who are at the lower income as well. I mean, this is some. Um, people who are making some relatively decent money that this issue still happens to. Um, But that doesn't mean that that that's a a problem. And there's some information or some research by Catherine Valls at the University of Minnesota, and she has done research on, on money and talks about how money is this really emotional component, that right. we tend to get more emotional about money decisions than other types of decisions. Yeah, that, that we somehow get irrational about something that is the most rational of all things. Right. Right, really. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that money is just, you know, it, it's counting, right? It's just, it's just currency. It's just ones, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Counting? It is not. Money is like... <laughs> it, determines my value of who I am, how much money I am is about well, and that's the crazy the person thing. that I can be and all yeah. of the future selves that I could potentially live and I need money in order to do that. And yet we don't always think about it in that future perspective. We think about it in this day-to-day living perspective. And so it is an interesting thing. And I think Sarab then he he starts talking about some of the components that go into this. So let's listen to what he says. What's been striking in, in, in starting kind of work in this field is kind of the severity of the situation. You know, a large share of households that are approaching retirement are approaching uh, retirement with far less than um, financial planners have uh, traditionally um, recommended in terms of asset accumulation. Um, but uh, so significantly less. But w- w- what's interesting is that we find that um, these deficits in, in savings um, actually extend to people with access to 
um, fairly generous 401k plans, for instance, um, at their employer. And they also extend um, to actual enrollees of these plans. So we might have thought that for a long time, well, um, the problem of uh, retirement preparedness was due to the fact that a lot of people didn't have access to um, attractive savings vehicles. But they do. But they have access. And they're actually enrolled to some. And they're actually enrolled. So, um, wow. you know, I think rightfully there is a lot of celebration of um, uh, automatic enrollment, which I think is one of the triumphs of, yeah. you know, behavioral economics and or the behavioral sciences more broadly and in, in trying to understand how to improve participation. So uh, firms um, that have uh, automatic enrollment with their 401k plan will have very high rates of participation around you know 80 or 90 percent relative to firms that have um, an opt-in program. Um, and so th- that's a I think that's a really nice demonstration of the power of uh, these non-economic factors or choice architecture in predicting something like, will someone participate in a 401k plan? But unfortunately, um, at least in the United States, for a lot of different reasons, the typical um, automatic enrollment rate associated with with automatic enrollment in 401k plans are quite low. Okay. And, and they're far lower than we think uh, is necessary they're not for a security. Eight, ten, twelve percent. They're more like three, four, six percent kind of Yeah. Numbers. So you know the modal kind of um, default rate is is three percent. And um, you know uh, That's pretty low. Um, to, to to save three yeah. percent of your income every year towards retirement. Right. That's that seems like that would be pretty low. It, it's low and um, it's it's puzzling I think uh, to a lot of researchers, given that this is in the context where you know eighty percent of four hundred one k plans have offer matching incentives, and, right. and quite often they're very generous. They're you know dollar for dollar, or sometimes even more generous than than that. Um, and so uh, these are not only um, tax sheltered uh, savings vehicles, but um, quite often they're associated with very generous matches. And so the financial attractiveness of these programs would uh, uh, lead to higher levels of, of, of contribution. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is that, um, again, uh, a large um, and significant fraction of, of actual enrollees, uh, so these are workers who have access to 401k plans, they've actually taken the step of enrolling or they've, you know, they've been enrolled by their firm, um, they're saving at rates, uh, even accounting for the match that we think are headed towards retirement insecurity. Um, and, and so wow. to me, that's kind of the striking kind of reality of, of where we are in terms of our, our broader um, landscape of financial wellness in the country. And, and are you finding any of the reasons for some of this? Uh, obviously, people need to save for retirement is it because they don't understand that they're that they're not saving enough? Is it because they're spending? They, they feel like they don't have enough free money today. That wow, I I just don't. I got to pay my bills today. I can't be putting money away. Is it some combination of those? Is it other factors? What what are you finding, um, or what do you know? Yeah, so uh, so that's a great question, and that that um, kind of the focus of uh, a recent field experiment that Lynn Connell Price and I just completed, and and we're um, we're preparing kind of the research now. So what we tried to do in um, in the study was to take kind of the um, three or four leading theory that 
economists and, and behavioral scientists have offered, more on the um, economist side, I think, okay. um, have offered as to um, why it is that people are, A, not saving enough. Um, people clearly have expressed, it's not that people are completely completely myopic. People are, are I think, invested in the idea of having enough for retirement. Um, but But they're invested in the idea. Right. Maybe not so much translating that into the the behavior or the actual choices they're making. Right. And that, and that's why it's um I think it's it's been it's both a puzzle on the on the on the theory side. Um so why aren't people, you know, saving enough? And, and obviously it's a it's a practical problem on on you know, on the policy side and in terms of thinking about people's welfare. Um but that's not the only puzzle. Uh the the other puzzle is why aren't they saving um in the context of of plans that offer really generous kind of matching incentives. Yeah. If, yeah. My, um, if my company has a generous match, why not save to the fullest amount? Right. Yeah. Right. And and I would say that um uh, another puzzle that we could um you know include at least with respect to um predictions of this kind of benchmark model of, of rational behavior. Maybe that's a, a bit of a straw man, but, but it's one that our field uh, loves. So uh, we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll stick with it. Yes. But, but maybe this third puzzle is this idea that um, people actually express an intent to save in the very near future, um, but quite often they just don't fulfill it. So we had a long discussion with Sarab where we discussed Shlomo Bonarzi's Save More Tomorrow approach. And, and can you just refresh the listeners who aren't familiar with Save More Tomorrow, Kurt, as to exactly how that works? So Save More Tomorrow is this uh, approach to, to retirement savings where uh, you put in a certain amount today uh, and it might not be it might not be to the max like we talked about. Some percentage of my income. Some percentage of my income. Yeah. Uh, but you're committing to the fact that when you get a pay raise next time or every year, depending upon how it's set up, that you will you will increase the amount that you're saving. So for instance, if I get a pay raise and it's a 4% pay raise, right? Instead of seeing that 4% drop to my bottom line and the paycheck I get every other week or every month, that maybe 2% of that 4% increase goes into my 401k savings now. Right. And so I don't ever see it because I get the pay raise and I see the 2% that comes out of that coming in. So I still actually have more more income in my paycheck when, getting, after, after I get the raise. You're getting more income. You're just not seeing the full component of that income. And you're pre-committing to this. Yeah, component. yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the beauty of this, right? Is that that commitment for those, those uh, annual or those um, uh, merit raises happens way before they actually occur. It's like I'm going to, you know, yeah, if I pick my lunch that I'm going to have next week, I'm going to pick the, the lettuce uh, <laughs> I'm salad. A, I'm always having the salad next right? week. <laughs> but, you know, if, if right. come next week and I have to decide the cheeseburger is really oh, good and that's going to be really hard for me to, to pick the salad when the cheeseburger sounds cheeseburger today salad tomorrow right so this is a way of of getting past that component yep but what sarab wanted to study is he goes so why is it so hard for people to retire or to to save for retirement right what are some of those components and he came up with three different areas that he thought that uh, the research kind of indicated could potentially lead because there's a lot of research that's already been done on on each of these individually, and he's putting them together and studying them all at the same time. Right. So so he's doing this this research study that's going to look at is is the lack of retirement saving so difficult for for employees because they lack this financial or retirement literacy. So that's number one, financial literacy. Right. And so do they understand? 
what it takes to to retire. Do they understand the compound interest of you know savings and how that works? So there's a right. bunch of financial literacy, and maybe people just don't know. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's why they don't save. Or number two. Maybe it's because these programs are too complex. Right. right. That, you know what, I, I have to figure out all this paperwork. I have to go online. I can only do it in a certain time period. It's just <laughs> right. too much work for me to do. A bunch of gobbledygook that I never have to deal with. Because, in fact, I may only have to do it once. Right. And so I'm not, it's complicated. I'm not, I'm not practiced on it. I have yeah. to learn up on it. I have to do all this work. And so it's complex. And so unfamiliar, unfamiliar. Yeah. So maybe it just gets too much and I just, I just shut down. So that, that's another potential reason why people don't save. And what's the third thing? And the third one is this element of self-control or procrastination. You know what? Hey, I just, it, God, it's just too much work today. I'll do it tomorrow. It's that, you know, I'm going to have a salad tomorrow. And <laughs> Cheeseburger I, today, I, salad tomorrow. <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will make my decision tomorrow on, on which yeah. plan I'm going to do, or I'm going to save more tomorrow, which where that kind of gets into some of the other components. Yeah. There's, the, there's this procrastination, self-control component. So um, he, he talked about uh, these three components, and he outlines this field experiment. Um, that he does. So let's let's listen in as he describes this field experiment and we pick up our conversation that there. Yeah, so um I, I think it's the first kind of field experiment that um was intended to uh to really test simultaneously test these three theories oh. in the context of a large um a, a large firm. Um and so we we worked with this large firm um over 50,000 50, benefit eligible employees. Okay. And um, they had a very, very generous match, actually. So it was actually more than a dollar for dollar, um, depending on whether or not you reached their, um, their 401k uh, um, matching floor. Um, and yet they had um, an average number of non participants, but they also had a lot of employees, particularly um, lower earning employees, that may have been participating, but at rates lower than um, the what would reflect like full match take up. So okay. they're participating at either 0%, 1%, 2%. 2%. What we did was we designed a, uh, a field experiment and a set of interventions um, that would address each of the biases or frictions that underlie each of these three ah, theories. Okay. Um, and the second thing we did uh, that I'm, I'm pretty excited about is... Um, uh, we coupled. We were able to couple the the interventions in the field experiment um, with administrative data from from the firm on actual savings behavior, but also a, a really detailed um, uh, survey, whereby we were able to collect information about um, the employees and their beliefs about retirement, about when they would retire, how much money they would need for retirement. Um, we got information. Um, uh, about how complex they thought the um, process was. Uh, we try to measure their um, underlying self-control. Financial um, literacy. Financial literacy yeah. um, we measured. And, and, so, and then you could match that against the actual choices that they made. So here, Sarab talks about retirement literacy. The first is that on, on this idea of retirement literacy yeah. um, that you know a lot of people uh, have... have have said these are problems around literacy, and so we need financial education. We need real time information um, 
uh, about um, you know recommending what one should do. And so while we found um, pervasive illiteracy, um, what we found is that um, quite often uh, the the dimensions of um, distorted beliefs would balance each other out. So um, people believe that um, uh, they're going to uh, um, live uh, longer than they are actuarially projected to live. Okay. Um, unless everyone knows something that, that we don't know. <laughs> right. But they also think that they're going to um, work longer than they are. So people underestimate the likelihood of, you know, some health shock or, you know, uh, other kind hmm. of form of involuntary retirement. So on um, those things kind of balance each other, each other out in wow. the sense of, on, on one hand, they think they're going to live longer uh, or sorry, work longer. So that suggests that they should save less, but then they think they're going to live longer, which suggests that they should probably save more. Um, and so if you, <laughs> yeah, if you take their crazy. beliefs, people don't appreciate how much they need to save, but they, they actually, I mean, our population again was primarily low saving um, or non-saving employees. They certainly recognize that they need to save dramatically more than they're saving right now. So they recognize that there was a deficit in what they were currently doing versus what they should be doing. Yeah. And so it's nice in the sense of, um, I mean, from a research perspective, um, it's clearer in the sense of, so we we see evidence for for low literacy along different dimensions, um, but they don't seem to um, predict that people uh, should be saving anywhere near the levels that they're currently saving. And then... Uh, we can look at the experiments where our intervention for that particular um, uh, uh, explanation had to do with um, clarifying uh, exactly how much people should be saving based on their personal yep. information. And that didn't move the needle at all. Okay. And it didn't move the needle for the people that had the, the worst beliefs. So there was, we found no evidence in the cross-section and the in the the average effects of the experiment, or in this um, this test of are the more biased people disproportionately helped by the intervention? I think strong evidence against this idea that it's retirement literacy and it's information um, is that, the culprit. That's not the culprit. Yeah. Okay, so retirement literacy alone is not the big problem. What about complexity? We asked. So complexity, without, without going into too many details, this was actually a setting where it was really easy um, to navigate the system and to save, and, and we made it even easier, and that had no effect. Um, and people didn't really wow. perceive it to be very complicated to begin with. So at least in this setting, there's little reason to think that complexity so was the issue. number one on literacy, no effect. Number two on complexity, no yeah. effect and no impact. Okay. So I'm assuming. <laughs> and after the commercial break. We'll, yeah. uh, so. so it's not a financial literacy or complexity problem. So what about self-control or procrastination? Right. So Rob shared a very clever behavioral intervention to help those who were not enrolled to consider enrolling. Let's listen. Address this confusion. But our intervention that we had designed to test for self-control problems um, and present bias was essentially um, giving people a $10 Amazon gift card. um, To To do do what? uh, Well, so you can't, 
explicitly pay people to save, but we um, get, we incentivize them to um, check their level of savings and make sure that they're okay with it. Uh, for the most part, I think once you once you get to the point where you're um, where you're at the um, where, where you're on the enrollment portal and at that point, you're actually going to increase your savings. Right. So I think people may have um, seen this as you know if I enroll now, I'll get this ten dollar Amazon gift card. Right. And so um, so that yielded interesting results for this um, this test of self control. But interestingly, the people who were in that condition um, uh, and actually went to the um, enrollment portal. If people had uh, expressed that they thought they were already participating, but the administrative data said that they weren't, those people were um, far more likely um, to actually uh, to actually enroll. Okay. And so 30% of people in that condition actually, around 30% actually um, did enroll, which was... Um, it, it's it's fairly high relative to the to the baseline for that condition, and what that suggests is that just by virtue of kind of being made aware that they weren't enrolled uh, for this group um, caused a lot of them to actually enroll, yeah. which is consistent with this idea that it's about confusion. Um, Ten dollars shouldn't matter; it shouldn't move the needle. Um, but what we found was that in this really intractable population that doesn't really respond to, to very much information and senses, <laughs> that 15% of them actually started to save, and, and most of them started to save at that 4%. Um, so it turns out that an inducement of a $10 Amazon gift card increased in rollies in the 401k plan. Yeah, It's ironic in Sarov's mind and unbelievable to a classical economist that a $10 gift card could be the catalyst to get someone to stop procrastinating about savings thousands of dollars every year. Right. It makes absolutely no sense, right? To say, well, let's see, I could improve my future by tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. I could be saving, 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 but I'm not going to do that unless you give me a $10 gift card. Yeah. I need a $10 to save 2000. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy, right? Yeah. And, and think about this component of what it does from a perspective of being very uh, an emotional response, right? That that hey, I get ten dollars today, right now. It's the cheeseburger again, right? I get a ten dollar yeah. cheeseburger for a two thousand dollar steak that <laughs> comes in the future. Uh, there's that. It's also, I think, it's worth pointing out that not everybody was doing this, right? This was a, a relatively it, w- it was the minority, right? right. The, ma- the majority of people were investing. They were going in, they were taking care of the paperwork, they were doing what they needed to do, and they were filling it out. But the fact that there was you know, 30%, that's a lot. That's, that's still lot. an awful lot of people who were not making the choice to take care of their future uh, simply because they didn't have the inducement to get in and do it. Yeah. And so, um, so Rob, in, in further conversation with him, we talked to him, that's not part of this, but he said that, what, 15% actually started to save and most of them saved at 4% yeah. because of those of that 30%. So that's a big improvement. So when you think about that, you think about the impact that a $10 Amazon gift card has 
on somebody potentially getting free money of a couple thousand dollars, it's pretty significant. Yeah, the other thing that, that I wanted to bring up here is uh, this reminds me a little bit about Robert Cialdini's work in persuasion. This this idea of getting it's it's what happens in the moment before you're trying to get them to do something. Uh, so Sarab and his his co-authors weren't trying to get people, weren't paying them for the act of saving. Mm-mm. It was just the act of going in and checking their balance. And then while they're there, they have this aha moment like, oh, I guess I, I realized that I wasn't, I wasn't enrolled. Right. They're already moving, right? They're, they're, they've there's already, momentum, huh? There's momentum. They've yeah. already entered in the website. They're checking their balance. Oh, I've already gone through all of this work already. <laughs> right. I might as oh well. Oh, my gosh. I've done so much hard work to get yeah. out here. But in our minds, that happens, right? It comes into these components of like when you're trying to set up a habit and, you know, just yes. put your shoes on if you want to go running. Don't don't commit to going running. Just commit to getting up in the morning and getting in your running clothes. And by that time, you've already done that. So then you're more likely to just go out and, and do running. Absolutely. And that's a much easier commitment to, to keep and to make. And so I think this is a, an extension of that. It gets obviously much bigger and, and more impactful potentially, but it, it really is that it's how do you induce somebody to start that movement? And I think that's an important lesson that people need to take from this. And it's a really clever intervention that they, they came up with. Right. And, and this is about retirement savings, but it can be about almost anything that people are procrastinating about, right? You want to write that, that novel. You want to, you know, learn French. You want to do something and you've just procrastinated, procrastinated, procrastinated about it. You may need that little cheeseburger today in order, <laughs> in order to, get, to get to the salad later. <laughs> well, I, to get to the steak later. There you go. Okay. All right. So with that, I think let's listen in um, next about what Sarav has to say. But so I, I think the final kind of insight that was striking to us was we started to run these calibrations um, where we looked at um, how does the typical um, economic model of self-control or beta delta discounting, what would it say, like how impulsive would you have to be, how present bias would you have to be to kind of rationalize or explain this baseline behavior of people not saving um, despite the availability of this really generous match. Um, and then on top of that, then switching into um, uh, savings behavior with $10. With a $10 yeah. gift and card. The The short of it is that it's almost this exercise in um, in absurdity uh, because <laughs> wow. Um, it, wow. it's it's really hard to even explain the baseline behavior of not saving given the generosity of these um, of these matches with these kind of models. And so so we have evidence, I think, for kind of present bias, like ten dollars did move um, or you can call it present bias, but but something ten dollars did did change behavior, um, whereas these like generous matching incentives didn't. Um, but then there was this question of what could explain it, and I don't think it's these traditional um, um, models of uh, limited self control that economists have been you know commonly using. Mm-hmm. So so the last bit of the story is around trying to figure out what's actually going on through. Um, you know, analyzing 
the, the rich data that we have and then, you know, running additional experiments. And so my thought about what actually might be going on, and this is somewhat speculative, but what's causing people to, to not save um, might be this sense of like proximal financial anxiety. Um, and it could be real economic liquidity, but I think it has more to do with financial anxiety. This idea that 50, 60, 70% of households report not having enough money to cover a $1,000 health expense. That, that's a real source, potentially a real barrier for why people might not um, save today. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, and, and um, I, I do think it's, uh, it just resonates um, in terms of um, our intuitive understanding of this decision that we face along a lot of you know, choices that involve our future finances. And, and so I have this idea for what I call a serenity account, and gotten mixed reactions to the name. Yeah. Uh, but, but the idea is that um, there, there is this uh, account that you, this buffer that you fill um, to give you some peace of mind about your ability to negotiate unexpected you know, yeah. shocks. And once that serenity account um, kind of reaches a month or two months of kind of emergency liquidity, um, then it, if we can have it automatically transfer into these 401ks, there are a lot of regulatory um, rulemaking that have, that have to be um, kind of negotiated or rewritten or, or dealt with. But I think people would be more willing to um, invest in their own short-term serenity, um, and that will happen to automatically then transition into helping them prepare for their, their future um, savings. Oh, and right. if we tied that to kind of more general kind of education around budgeting and financial planning, not around you know how does compound interest work and do you need to save seventeen percent or twelve percent, mm. but um, more around you know the basic kind of skills that um, I think I have yet to learn uh, about <laughs> um, kind of month to month you know prudent financial behavior and a lot of firms are already doing this around financial mm-hmm. planning and wellness yeah. programs. Yeah, and, and so we're running experiments where you know we're having people kind of meditate or relax um, and somehow reduce the stress before making these decisions and um, wow. to, to, to understand whether maybe what's driving a lot of these puzzle, you know, ostensibly puzzling behaviors has to do with just the overwhelming um, kind of emotional stress and uh, of these decisions, particularly yeah. in this kind of environment. Well, with with that, um, we're going to have to end on the Serenity account, which I think is actually a totally appropriate place to 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 wrap up. Yeah, we can all just. Mm. Sarab, thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you for uh, really appreciate you taking time to uh, to come in and and uh, spend some time with us in the studio. Yeah, this thank is, you so much great. for for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, thank you. So serenity accounts sound like a really good idea. Yeah. Having that component to be able to have this financial uh, you know, savings that protect me, this this component that I am no longer at the mercy of uh you know, a car breakdown or something else that then takes some of that scarcity component yeah. away that we talked about earlier, some of that fear that then activates that amygdala. 
this was a prominent in the discussions in the United States when the government was shut down about how people are going to deal with not having a paycheck and the number of people who were were going to file for unemployment after one week because they weren't going to be able to make their their mortgage their, or their rent. Yeah, I thought, wow, you know, this uh, <laughs> Serenity account would have really come in handy for, for for these folks, right? To have a little bit of a backlog, yeah, to have uh, have a buffer in place. And I like the fact that then that Serenity account is is there for that short term use, but then provides that long term component. We talked right. with Silky Britain oh, in yeah. the past, and, yeah. and she was doing something similar in England about trying to just get people to save more and to do different things. Because again, I think it's a pervasive component where we're having issues with the amount of savings that we have as a society. And so I think just to recap. The whole conversation. I think that's one of the big takeaways for me, that as a society, um, Western society, we are not saving enough. Right. So listeners, go out. I, I, you know what? If you go check your, uh, your 401k savings account and balance and different things and you want to send me a screenshot from it. Um, I'll send you a I'll send you a ten dollar Amazon gift card. How about that? <laughs> there you go. There, there you go. go. Yeah. Yes, just do that. So, I, I think we can all do better at that. What about you? Uh, you know, uh, the complexity and the procrastination elements are important. The big takeaway for me, Kurt, was that that behavioral sciences can actually tease out some really great insights. Uh, but it took a lot of work to get to the point where Sarab and his colleagues were able to figure out exactly what is it that's driving this. Because financial literacy was low, but that wasn't that there wasn't a fix. It in didn't that. really fix it. So the classical right. solutions, right? Financial literacy, reducing complexity. Yeah. Those weren't working. Making it easy today, that still wasn't enough. It actually took this really clever uh, intervention of the Amazon gift card to act to get people to do the pre-work, to get them to do the trigger work, to get into the uh, into their accounts, and, and I think that that just takes some rigor um, and some focus to actually apply. Because it sounds like a really simple and intuitive solution. It's like, oh, of course, that would be so great. Anybody could do that. But the challenge, <laughs> the challenge is, it's. It's not intuitive on the front end. No. Right? There was nothing that, that pointed to the fact that what, what they really needed was, well, let's just get everybody to check their accounts. All right. And I think this parlays itself a lot into, obviously, this situation with retirement and financial components. But think about all of the other types of work that we do within organizations. Yeah. And those true and tried solutions that just don't really work. And, and trying to get an executive team to say, well, let's pay people, you know, to check their, uh, you know, their, their, their balance of their payroll. And they're going, why? Why you in the are, world would we do that? No kidding. That's a crazy idea. Let's, you know, or, or pay them to, to, you know, make sure that their sales prospecting list is right. Well, of course they should be doing that because that's going to lead them to get better sales or, you know, do their pre-work before doing something. So it's this paying people for things that lead up to right. the the ultimate component that people want. And I think it's a really hard sell sometimes inside organizations. And what this goes to show is sometimes these unintuitive kind of solutions are the ones that actually make an impact. And 
if you're using, if you're really good at hindsight bias, like I am, I'm, <laughs> I'm very good at that, that you could look back and go, well, of course that was the problem. Of course. A- after you've solved it. Yes. Of course that was the deal. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that just goes to show that, as you mentioned at the very beginning of this section here, is it's hard. We make assumptions and we have to do the rigorous work and the be really conscious of all of the behavioral biases that we have. And I think that's the key piece. And the key takeaway for me in this is just to say organizations, as individuals, as a society, we need to keep applying these behavioral science principles Yes, and applying them with more rigor and use those to really understand the real reasons why we're not doing things and put applications or solutions uh, into account that actually work. And let's do that. Uh, right. And it's not easy. No, it's not it's, easy. It does take some effort to do it, but the results can be tremendous right? if, if you do it. So with that, thank you for listening. Uh, hope you, hopefully you enjoyed and learned something from this one. Share this with a friend. Um, you know, go out to Apple Podcasts and give us a review if you like it. Uh, we appreciate all of it. You're part of this community that we're trying to build, and we really appreciate you listening. And thank you. And with that, keep on grooving. grooving.